Hey there, it's Paula from Journeys of Faith, and my next guest is Dan Harris. Not sure how much of an introduction you're going to need, because if you know me, you probably know Dan. Dan was my work husband for four years. We were co-anchors together on Weekend Good Morning America. He also has a really popular podcast called 10% Happier, which is about meditation. And it goes without saying that Dan and I are dear friends. And according to him, it's okay not to know the answers to some of those big existential questions that we all have. The conversation you're about to hear is one that Dan and I would often have off camera. But in this episode, we go a lot deeper. So here's Dan Harris in his own words on this week's edition of Journeys of Faith. You sure you want to do this, Dan? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I I have been trying to book you for a long time. That's not true. No, I seriously have. (laughs) But the problem is, is you didn't know it because I have to go through your people. That's not true either. You have people. (laughs) I do not. You do. Okay, I might have a few people, but you don't have to go through them. We actually did this, but... In reverse fashion, mm-hmm. I went on your podcast a couple mm-hmm. of months ago, and now you're finally on my podcast. Yeah, I've been waiting for this. You're not nervous at all to sit there, are you? A little bit nervous, sure. Why? I'm not telling the truth. You're not going to tell the nervous. truth? No, I'm not nervous. So if I asked you to put your hand in the Bible and tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, you would lie? Uh, I wouldn't. I actually really have a problem with lying, whether there's a Bible present or not. I love it. I, can I just say I miss you? I miss working with yes. you. Dan and I, I don't know if you need much of an introduction. If you know me, you probably know Dan because he was my work husband. And I kind of still consider you my work husband, even though we've probably separated uh, for all intents and purposes. How long has it been? Since I stopped doing weekends? Yeah. Too long. Yeah. September. Wow. I know. We're we're going up on a year. But we worked together for four years on Weekend GMA, and it was the time of my life. You're actually the first guest that I've had on that I have had to do no research on because I feel like I know so much about you. you. I know you so much. Yes. But um, and it's just the nature of the relationship that we had, too. I'm the little sister you never had nor wanted. <laughs> so it was very familial and jovial. But um, I want to give people a little bit of insight as to the type of conversations that we used to have because you used to be a religion reporter. Mm-hmm. At, and do you still kind of? classify yourself as a religion reporter here at ABC? I haven't been doing that much of it in recent years. Right. So, but I did do it for probably a decade or more Mm -hmm. pretty consistently. And you and I used to get into these conversations and it's so interesting because you would probably classify yourself as agnostic. Agnostic. And yet you, once I I moved here eight years ago, you introduced me to so many people in my faith community uh, friends like Gabe and Rebecca Lyons, yeah, who are, who are leaders in the faith community. I, let let's dig into let's unpack your history a little bit. And I do want to like issue a disclaimer that we don't know where this is going to go because we're such dear friends. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to get into your particular faith history. You grew up in Boston. Parents were physicians, correct? Mm-hmm. Was it one of them Jewish, or were they both Jewish? My dad's Jewish. Jewish guy from New Jersey. My mother is a wasp. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Annie Hall, where mm. like Woody Allen starts dating Diane Keaton, it's a little bit like that. Okay. Um, and uh, my dad was, I guess, raised with some religious, uh, in a somewhat religious atmosphere, but was not particularly, was not and is not particularly religious. And my mother is a pretty, um, I would I would classify her closer to atheist than agnostic. agnostic okay. Yes. So you were? Did you go to synagogue at all? I we had no re- organized religion in our life at all until I hit like tween age, maybe seventh grade, and a lot of my friends were going to Hebrew school and going to have bar mitzvahs, and I wanted that. Uh, so you just wanted the bar mitzvah experience. Yes, that's what I wanted. <laughs> so we found because I was half Jewish. We found a, a progressive temple nearby mm-hmm. uh, that was willing to put me in Hebrew school. So I went to Hebrew school for a little while and then had a bar mitzvah and then promptly stopped. <laughs> promptly stopped. What did you think about the whole experience? Obviously, we know you had an ulterior motive because you yeah. wanted to have a big party. Yeah, and the money, yes. And uh, do you get money? Oh, yeah, you get plenty of money. Really? Yeah, people you... give gifts of cash. Is it is it always cash? Uh it's 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 not quite like you know in the Godfather where at the weddings everybody's like stuffing cash into a bag or whatever. <laughs> at a, uh, it's not quite like that, but it, people are sending you checks. I remember sitting in my room afterwards and opening up all these envelopes with all these checks. Sub- is it is it substantial? Yeah, hundreds of dollars each. Yeah. Holy cow! This is like a wedding. No, I think I I, I remember. 
and I, I may be making this up, but I remember that the grand total was something like six thousand dollars. Are you, what, do you remember what you did with the I think money? I, my parents just took it and put it in my college fund or something like that. Because, I couldn't spend it. They wouldn't let me spend it. Oh, they wouldn't let you spend no. it. But they probably had to fork out thousands of dollars yeah. for the bar mitzvah yes. to begin with, yes. correct? And the Hebrew school and all that stuff. And of course, then my little brother decided to go do it. Oh. Yes. One point in the bar mitzvah, they bring you up in front of the Torah. And I think you get to make a wish. Mm-hmm. And his wish in front of God and everyone was, um, I want to be taller than my brother. And he is. Uh, he's like a half inch taller than me. So, oh. so God loves him just that's, a little bit more, right? right? That's That's grace. That is crazy. Preach, Dan. <laughs> so you have this experience, but does it does it pique any sort of interest within you? Because you're learning the, the Torah and the Old Testament. And the Torah is just several books from the Old Testament extracted, correct? Genesis, I, Exodus, Leviticus. I'm a little truly embarrassing that I don't know this. Although I guess not that embarrassing because no, it was not. 35 years ago or whatever that I did this stuff. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, nothing. Nothing. Um, I enjoyed learning the new language. I The only sort of academic aptitude I've ever had is I'm reasonably good at languages. So I kind of liked that. I liked the kind of vibe of Hebrew school because in regular junior high environment was pretty tough and everybody was trying to be cool and it was a little bit of a, a cutthroat environment. In ter- you know, there's a lot of bullying mm-hmm. and who's dating whom. And in in Hebrew school, everybody was comfortable being dorky. And so I really liked that. Uh, so, you, but I didn't take any, I didn't, there was no, none of the metaphysical stuff landed with me in any way. And so I didn't, I wouldn't have called myself inspired. When did you first start asking yourself the question, is there something out there that's bigger than me? I don't remember feel, exploring that in, Hebrew school per se. And I don't even remember exactly when I started thinking those things through. But um, I do remember my mother taking me aside early on. I think I've told you the story before when I was very young, seven, mm-hmm. eight or whatever. And she and I can't remember if I'm making this up, but I I, rem, I remember it happening. But sometimes kids make things up. This about, about their Santa. Most. She told me oh, that yeah. not only is there no Santa Claus, but there's also no God. And I remember her explaining like, oh, well, you know, the, these kinds of beliefs stem out of the fact that when we were, uh, you know, our ancient ancestors were confused by why the sun rose and fell and why the wind blew. And, and, and they came up with divine explanations for mm. all of these things they couldn't understand. I do remember her saying all of this stuff to me. And to this day, your mother would classify herself as an atheist. I would say atheist. I mean, it's a funny word because I don't know any atheists who – will say definitively there is no God and I can prove it. You know, my mother's a scientist, so I don't think she would argue that she can prove there's no Mm -hmm. God. I think she would argue there's no proof that there is a God and the burden's on you if you want to say there's a God. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I would say, I I would imagine if she were here, she would just say, I haven't seen any evidence that there's a God. Mm -hmm. And you're also married to a physician and a scientist. Your wife is... Uh, a pulmonologist, correct? Yes. And a, she's double, what's called double boarded in pulmonology and critical care. So she can work in an ICU. Okay. You're surrounded by smart women. I am. And then there's me across the table. <laughs> Another smart woman. <laughs> Not really. So you're raised in a half Jewish home. You have your bar mitzvah. Your mom has this conversation with you. But when did you really decide, okay, this is what my parents are telling me and informing me of, uh, but this is this is what I see. This is going to be my path. How did that all come to be? Did you explore? I, you know, so I, I was a kind of a forced exploration. In my early 30s, my then boss and mentor, Peter Jennings, who's worked down, literally down the hall here, iconic anchorman here at ABC News, assigned me. He was, the, he, he was a bit of a visionary. I, I don't think he was personally that active in his religious practice. Uh, he was raised Christian, but I don't think he was devout. Um, I only learned this later. Um, but he really understood that Americans care about faith. And Peter, I was kind of his young protege. I was quite young at the time. You had already been <clears> working <throat> in Iraq, correct? You were I, course- Pre-9-11, actually. So the year 2000, 2001. Um, How long have you been at ABC, just real quick, just to give people 19 a 19 years. Okay, so almost yeah. 20 years. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so Peter said, uh, you, Dan, are going to start covering faith and spirituality. And I said, I don't, I do not want to do that. I'm not interested in this at all. Uh, and he didn't care. He said, you're going to do it. And I then spent a lot of time. I, I was actually covering on 9-11. I was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, covering a story about 
church youth groups or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And I was on the back of a plane and some guy in the front of the plane turned around, gotten off the phone. He just said a plane flew into the Twin Towers. And I got off the plane and got in a car and drove to um, Pennsylvania where Flight 93 had gone down. I was one of the first reporters to show up there. Anyway, uh, that Mm -hmm. assignment from Peter is what ended up throwing me into this world of faith and spirituality. Uh, I was in mosques, megachurches, Mormon temples. I met all sorts of people. That's when I started to make real friends uh, and to see that I was truly ignorant about these issues. Didn't I mean, just like I before couldn't tell you what what the overlap is between the Torah and, and the Old Testament, that uh, which is embarrassing, but it was even worse back then. I just mm-hmm. knew very, very little and really initially wasn't that interested. But I started to learn a ton and uh, to see that I had a lot of biases and prejudices that were false. I also realized that I had, you know, I had just kind of come to this conclusion that uh, – the origin of the universe is a mystery. And then I just stopped thinking about it. Mm-hmm. It was like some, I probably had a few debates in a dorm room when I was at college and landed on the agnostic side of the spectrum. And so it was really inspiring for me to see that huge swaths of this culture get up on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning, depending on your faith, and spend an hour or two kind of thinking about their place in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. That I really, that kind of got me to pay attention. However, it didn't get me um, practicing any particular religion. I just, I kind of noticed it with interest, but I, beyond that, it didn't land. So it doesn't really inspire you one way or the other. Being the religion correspondent, does it kind of drive you deeper into your own atheism slash you said you were agnostic? I mean, I don't know where you draw the line. I mean, te- technically, atheism, A, is in Greek would mean without. Without theism, God. With, yes, without God. It's the belief that there is no God. Mm-hmm. Ag, a, gnostic, G-N-O is knowledge, yes. So without knowledge. So I don't know. To me, to say I don't know is the only, to me, is the only rational uh, and actually quite a healthy uh, stance in the face of the many mysteries of of existence. And um, so, yeah, I, I kind of landed on that, but it was an incurious agnosticism. So I saw some beautiful things, but I also saw some things that were like, wow. Have, but by the way, I also covered the, you know, I was in in uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, Iraq six times. So I really saw how Islamic fundamentalism was taking root and the battles between Jews and, and Muslims in, in the so-called Holy Land. And I, I could see how these, these beliefs could – um, bring out real cruelty. Do you think it's just an extreme version of these beliefs, or do you think that there is actually scripture that inspires people to take these malicious actions? So I don't want to pretend I know more than I do, but certainly there are people out there who use scripture, whether in context or yes. not, to justify awful, awful. We behavior. see it in Christianity, in Judaism, in Islam, not really in Buddhism. Uh, no, that's not true. Right now, there is a Buddhist government in uh, Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, that is carrying out a genocide a group against a group of Muslims known as the Rohingya. It's awful, and it's very hard for me to compute as somebody who would call himself a Buddhist uh, because – and again, we can we, we can get into this. Um, I don't really think of Buddhism as oh, personally as, as a, a religion. Okay. Yes, but it can be practiced as a religion. There's no question about it. It is very much practiced as a religion in, in the East. So you're an agnostic who is influenced by Buddhist principles, correct? I am a, a – this is where it gets even more confusing. I, I, I'm making you sound really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a Buddhist, full stop, because in Buddhism, there is no creation myth. The Buddha mm-hmm. did not describe himself as a god or a prophet or in any way immortal. He was a guy who – died and, you know, uh, and lived his life for 80-some years and taught people how to meditate and specifically said, and this is what I really like about him, do not take anything I say on faith. Check it out for yourself. And so it is totally fine for me to call myself a Buddhist who has seen no evidence for reincarnation or karma or uh, enlightenment. Uh, I, I, but I do believe that the mind is trainable 
and that we that all of the mental states that we want, like calm, compassion, connection, are skills, not factory settings. So these are things we can learn. Yes, and train. And it's not just a matter of hearing it once, feeling inspired, and forgetting. It is actually a practice that you can do every day through something called meditation or other related activities like various contemplations and habits that you can create mm-hmm. that pounds it into your neurons and molecules in a way that way, in my experience, way surpasses the impact of hearing a beautiful sermon or reading a beautiful book. It's actually like m- make you know – It's in action. In many absolutely. senses, it's faith in action where we – it's – it's it, for us in 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 many faith circles it's it's what we believe and it's the it's our words but it's not necessarily our actions for you it's all action driven it seems like yes but there are a lot of people of i think there's a this is where you get into the overlap between the type of religious practice that i that i'm most intrigued by so gabe lyons a pastor who who's a friend of mine uh, who i find very very interesting has described uh, a practice that he does where he calls it, I think, something like Jesus goggles, sort of walking around the streets wearing goggles, uh, obviously imaginary ones, through which he views the world as Jesus might. It's his lens. Yes. It's and Jesus so lens. can I view everybody with compassion and friendliness? So uh, that is very close to Buddhist practices of developing a friendly okay. attitude toward yourself and others. To me, that's very intriguing, and I don't think – I think faith uh, um, at its best, in my view, is in that realm. Mm-hmm. Where you're actually walking that walk. So so where Gabe Lyons would say he has Jesus goggles, you have like compassion goggles. Yeah. And I will say I've known you for a long time. I have – I've known you since before your New York Times bestseller, 10% Happier, <laughs> came out. And I have seen a, a marked difference in – your response to certain situations, but I have a lot of work to do, and I mean, uh, but we uh, all do. I yeah. don't, but the expect you can't. The expectation isn't perfection. No, for you, def- what is it? I'm Mister Ten Percent. There's a, there's a there's a reason for that. I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's hard to. I don't believe there are silver bullets, and I think that change happens incrementally over time. Uh, but I'm just well aware that mm-hmm. I really appreciate you saying what you just said. But and I, I think it's true. But I also am in touch with my deficiencies. So, and we can talk about them because I'm, I'm writing a book about kindness right now. What are your deficiencies? I had a, do you know what a 360 review is? Yes. Uh, I think I tried to get you to participate in it, but did somehow I not? We, you didn't. Um, How did I not participate in the 360 review? The, is this what other people would say about you? Okay. Yeah, yes, it is. Uh, it's like, imagine if you could sit in a room and listen to people anonymously discuss your good and bad point according to them this would be off the record it would never get back to me or are they sharing it in the context where we want her to hear this but we don't want her to know who it's from yes oh god that's painful it's painful so here's how it works there are lots of ways to do 360 reviews they're commonly used in can i give you a 360 review right now it would be <laughs> it wouldn't be 360 it would be your perspective um which i would take right but this is truly 360 so they find people who are your bosses people who are your peers people who work for you and in this case we also add it in my personal life so my wife my brother my med- two of my meditation teachers matt's your br- matt's your brother, brother and bianca is your wife yes and um 16 people and they did hour long anonymous interviews with a firm called reboot and uh they the people at reboot then typed up a, the summary of it 41 pages and it's all anonymized so basically they summarize the viewpoints and then they put direct quotes in so they'll say here are your points where you need to work and they'll summarize it in their own mm-hmm. language and then they'll put in direct quotes mm-hmm. from the interviews did you look at any of the direct quotes and and trace it yes. back oh you, oh, you, you can't know. help it i've read it like five times okay and, so where so, what are your deficiencies so i'm trying to remember them all but one of them is emotional guardedness mm-hmm. that I uh, – part of it is that I just have a really good poker face. Mm-hmm. But part of it is that also I'm not emotionally open. Uh, but you're uncomfortable with, with I would say, open di- displays of inf- yes. uh, affection. Yes. It makes you uncomfortable, yes. which is why I like to hug you. Except because, for with my son. Except for with your son. Yeah. But see – you're and my cats maybe. It's a different response though. It's evoking a different response from within you. That's true. And he's he's looking at you – like, I want to give you a hug. My motive is different than Alexander trying to give you a hug. Yeah. He would not say I'm emotionally guarded. He would say I'm annoying. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> All parents are, yes, right? Right. Okay. What are you teaching your son when it comes to faith and religion? Uh, I'm teaching him that uh, it's okay not to know. Okay. I think it's – I think that the – again, my view, this is my opinion, is that the rational response to the many mysteries, how did we get here, what's the purpose of life, um, how – you know, the mystery of consciousness, how do we go mm-hmm. on this planet from rocks to being able to sing opera, um, I think the, lo- the logical stance in the face of these big questions is, I don't know, let's investigate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's talk about it. And so I'm telling him when I, that it's okay if he asks me a big question to say I don't know. He he's very interested in death mm-hmm. right now. Um, it's just inter- interesting slash a little poignant for me because but I. What do you tell him? Like what do you tell him? I say I don't. We don't know. What, what, like when um, we had a cat who died. Um, we've got he's got a couple grandparents who are sick, and he'll ask a lot about um, where, what's going to happen. What happened to Gussie the cat when he died? And we say we don't know. You don't know. I don't know. What, so you, what do you believe happens? I don't. I you don't really know. Don't know. You have no idea. No. None whatsoever. None. Does that give you anxiety? Are you at peace with that? No, I wouldn't say I'm at peace with it. I think, uh, I think it's, I think it's really healthy to contemplate death, and this is a big part of Buddhism. Big part of Buddhism is, con- you know, one of the, one of the three sort of characteristics of of existence that the Buddha talked about was impermanence and everything's changing all the time. And the source of our suffering is that we're latching onto things that we can't control that are always going to be changing. And, uh, the, the Buddha used to have people sit in charnel grounds where you sit there and look at bodies decomposing to, to know in your bones that this is going to happen to you. And it's very, I mean, obviously I haven't done that, but I've, you talk my, about a perspective shift. In my career, I've seen a lot of death um, in war zones, in disaster zones, uh, you know, in the Haiti earthquake, for example. Um, And I think there's a way you can have that be traumatizing. And I think there's a way in which you can have a healthy metabolizing of this information to understand, hey, this is lawful. This is how the world is. We are born without asking to be born and we die most often at a time, not of our choosing, and that's the way it is. And to understand that can help you wake you up so that you're living your life more fully. So you're being present and intentional as well. And you're aligned with the small t Mm -hmm. truth, the inarguable truth. We don't know what's going to happen. We can have different – we can have an argument what happens after you die. We can't argue about whether you die. Mm -hmm. And so there's something very powerful, and this is what draws me to Buddhism and journalism, by the way, with being aligned with the – with the truth. And uh, that's just a kind of a powerful, invigorating space mm-hmm. from which to live your life. What do you believe the truth to be? Beyond the fact that we die. You said to be aligned with the truth. So uh, there are three things that the Buddha talks about that I think are just kind of inarguable. One is uh, that think everything changes. Impermanence? Yes. Okay. Two is, and I kind of already said this, if you uh, are... Grasping onto things that change all the time, you will suffer. That's called the law of suffering. Okay. Uh, suffering um, also can be translated into kind of a generalized unsatisfactoriness. There's this kind of there's a writer who used the term background static of perpetual discontent. We're always kind of wanting something, not wanting something, thinking about. We're the never past satisfied. The, yeah, we're kind of never where we're at. There's this colicky baby aspect to our existence if we're paying attention to it. That, to me, just seems really true. Being we are aware wired. of that. Being aware of that is very powerful because then you can kind of not let it own you. Mm-hmm. But we have this. Is, it's a bit of a design flaw in evolution. So ev- evolution um, wired us to look for sources of pleasure, um, like food or mates. But it didn't wire us so that when we found food – we were perpetually satisfied. We needed to be unsatisfied quickly so that we kept eating and survived and got our DNA into the next generation. Mm-hmm. We, as a consequence, are left with this kind of insatiability that is very uncomfortable, and especially when you're tuned into it. And some people would say that that's a God-shaped hole. Maybe. Yes. I'm, and I'm open to that argument. Mm-hmm. I'm open to lots of arguments. Okay. So point three. Point three is of- that if you look closely at your experience – you won't be able to find some core you. This is the hardest thing that the Buddha talked about to understand. 
which is that it's called selflessness, which is that uh, we th- you on some level probably think there's some core Paula between your ears, behind your eyes, somewhere in there. There's like a little homunculus <laughs> driving the ship, but there isn't. Everything's just coming and going and changing all the time. And this illusion we create of having a self, a core Paula, a core Dan that we have to build up and defend all the time is the wellspring for a lot of our negative emotions like greed and hatred, et cetera, et cetera. This is a really – Because at the root of that, it's selfishness and that's it's about right. you. That's right. Ah, that's, that's interesting. Right. And so selflessness as we use it in the Western context of mm-hmm. generosity is connected to this kind of deeper selflessness of like – there is no really no real you there. Mm-hmm. There is obviously Apollo. It's inarguable. You're sitting in this chair, and you have to make dentist appointments under that name and all that stuff. So you do exist, but not on some core level. One analogy you could use is you're sitting in a chair right now. We can agree that's a chair. But if we had a very powerful microscope, it would be revealed to be just spinning subatomic particles, mostly empty space. So at some core level, there is no chair. After the break, Dan tells us about the moment that led him to meditation, and we share an intimate exchange about what happens in the afterlife. When you just look, though, at the grandeur, the scope of the Earth, how we're – the perfect amount of gravity how it keeps us in place, how the sun rises and sets at the, it, every day, we know that there is order – um, how can order come from chaos, which which a lot of people believe is evolution? Because you, in, in my estimation, order cannot come from chaos. So how is it that we have these things that are permanent, these things that we can rely on every day, whether it's the sun rising, the sunset, the earth spinning perfectly, we're in the perfect position for gravity so we don't float and we don't we don't drop all the way. Like wh- those things that you can't explain. How do you ex- how do you explain them? And in, in in the sense that I don't know there is a God, but am I sure that there's no God? I'm definitely not sure there is no God, um, and I think it's a reasonable question to ask for sure. I think the reasonable response is I don't know, but I would say there's one sort of logical counterpoint to that, which would be in an infinite universe, the odds are pretty high that the circumstances will be right for life. And obviously the odds are low that in any given mm-hmm. corner of the cosmos that life will emerge. And that may be why, while we've done a certain amount of space exploration, both embodied space exploration where we send ourselves up there, but mm-hmm. even more significantly through, I mean, even more far-reachingly through telescopes, et cetera, et cetera, we haven't found any life for a long time. I think the reason for that is that the odds of it are low. It's hard to have the perfect circumstances. So that's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is you may be right and that there that this could only happen with divine intervention. That's possible. I, I'm well, not going to say that's It's my true. view. That's my view. It's also your intuition, right? Mm-hmm. So it's your view and it's also like it just feels right to you, I think. And I'm not here to disabuse you of that. So what, where do you think our inherent moral code? I think in, inherently we know the difference between right and wrong. and That's why we feel guilty. Um, where does that come from if if – this is just an infinite universe. Uh, it's it's evolution, and, and evolution is is based on chaos, and that order came from chaos. So, where do we get that inherent feeling and knowledge between right and wrong? So, it could be your argument that we um, we got it because we were designed that way by God. Um, you can also make a case based on evolution. So, we evolved for um, cooperation. And it was the tribes who cooperated most effectively that survived over time. We evolved to be mammalian caregivers. Uh, we needed – we had babies that have long um, periods where, as you know, having raised three of them, where they're completely useless and mm-hmm. super demanding. So uh, it is – we're wired for caring, for empathy, for compassion. And if you pay attention – and that's what Buddhism, Buddhism is all about is paying attention, mm-hmm. waking up to – the reality of your inner and outer experience, if you're paying attention, it feels good to be good. Uh, just as a semi-absurd example, what does it feel like when you hold the door open for somebody? It feels great. I right. feel like I've, I'm paying it forward that right. it's a random act of kindness. It right. feels it fills my bucket. That's Even right. though I, I always say you elevate yourself by elevating others. So, That's yes, right. there is still a little bit of a selfish internal ulterior motive because you're going to feel good by doing something 
nice for someone else. That's called enlightened self-interest. Okay. That is wise selfishness. And that's the, that is the thesis of my next book, which is there's an expression by, uh, from purported to be from Abraham Lincoln, which is when I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. Mm-hmm. That's my religion. And we are wired for that, I think, by evolution, which really – obviously, we're capable of great cruelty, but that feels bad if you're paying attention. There's a reason why we used to have to drug soldiers in order to get them to kill uh, because it's not what we want to be doing unless we're psychopaths. Have you ever – okay, so you, you say you don't know that there is a god, but you just can't prove one. Have you ever like truly explored – to find out if God exists. What would that look like to you? Um, you know, I think, I mean, there have to be moments where you just look up at the stars and you think there's got to be something bigger than myself. Or you look at your hands and like for me, I'm telling my fingers to move and they're moving. I don't know how, but they're moving. The birth of your child, which is a miracle in and of itself. We can't, exp- there are so many things that we can't explain, which for me I know without a doubt that there is something higher. My interpretation of that, of course, is Christianity. But like I've told you before, you know, if I knew everything about God, God would be too small. I accept that. I accept that I can believe, and that's where faith comes in. There's a lot that we can prove that there are certain things where your, your faith just, ha- you have to take that little step of faith. But don't you think if you could prove, if like if I knew everything about God and I could explain it, then he'd be way too small in some aspects? I don't have a response. That that may be right. Um, I I guess there are two parts of what you're saying that I think might be worth breaking apart. So it's not that I'm not <laughs> saying there isn't something higher. So I do look up at the sky or I do look at my sun or I do look at my hands the way you just say. And that does fill me with awe. And by the way, there's a, there's a significant amount of science that suggests that the feeling of awe mm-hmm. can lead to happiness and better behavior. So – that's a really important thing you're tuning in on, I think, and there's there's evidence to support that. So I really do believe that we're part of this incalculable universe that's so mysterious, and I think tuning into that is incredibly powerful and important. I just don't know. I'm comfortable. Like comfortable may be the wrong word, but I'm okay having that be a mystery. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't need uh, – I don't feel the need to have an explanation for that. I get your intuition that mm-hmm. um, this couldn't have just happened randomly and um, and therefore uh, you're attracted to this set of beliefs. I, I'm Again, I'm not here to tell you that's wrong and I'm not here to tell anybody that's wrong. It's just not my intuition. We talked about the second point from the Buddha was the law of suffering, kind of mm-hmm. like that God-shaped hole. For me, I, I, I filled that God-shaped hole with my own faith. Don't you, don't you think in some aspects you filled that what I would – surmised to be a God-shaped hole, you filled that with Buddhism and meditation? Because you were definitely searching for something, were you not? So what happened was after I covered... You had a panic attack. Yeah. So I had a panic attack that was caught on Good Morning America, which was pretty inconvenient. It's the worst feeling, isn't it? It is a hard... You've had... Several. The the beginnings of this. Mine were rooted in in, an asthma attack and then turned into panic. Yeah. So... I did a very dumb thing of self-medicating with drugs cocaine and ecstasy, I was, I went on to have a panic attack, not because I was high on the air, but because my brain chemistry, I later learned from a psychiatrist, had been changed as a consequence of using drugs, and that made it more likely for me to panic. And after I had the panic attack, um, it was actually a couple of years after I had the panic attack, uh, one of our colleagues, Felicia Baberica, who, who was a senior producer on World News Tonight, recommended that I read a book by a self-help guru named Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And... I thought the book, as I began to read it, she recommended I read it, by the way, uh, because I was covering faith and spirituality. So she thought, hey, this guy might be a good story for you. But for her, his writing had been very meaningful. And so I started to read the book, and I was like, this is ridiculous. This is really sort of fluffy, soft language. He talks about vibrational fields and blah, blah, blah. And then he started to talk about the fact that we all have a voice in our heads, Mm -hmm. by which he's not talking about mental illness. He, He means this inner conversation you're having with yourself all the time, these random thoughts about the past or the future, other people judging yourself, um, mostly negative, repetitive thought patterns that we have, that uh, this is inner conversation that owns us. Um, It's why like we eat when we're not hungry or we 
check our voicemail in the middle of a conversation with somebody else or we are losing our temper when it doesn't make any sense because we're just yanked around by this inner conversation. Is it our ego? Or he calls it the ego. The Buddha calls it the monkey mind. You can just call it your inner narrator, whatever you want to call it, stream of consciousness. Um, and I, I had never heard this thesis before and it was so compelling to me. And I realized, one, it's just – it seems obviously true, certainly mm-hmm. true for me. Two, it explained why I went off to war zones as an ambitious young reporter without thinking about the consequences, came home, got depressed, was insufficiently self-aware to know it, and then just blindly self-medicated. It just kind of made sense of the most embarrassing set of events in my life. And so that got me searching. My problem with Eckhart Tolle, who I ultimately did go interview, was that he didn't appear to have any act- actionable advice for dealing with this issue. Mm-hmm. And I, I started to explore even further and ultimately landed on meditation. And that's how it all happened. Yes. But but in, in you would say that you filled that void. You were searching for something and meditation and Buddhism filled that for you. I don't know if I would phrase it like filling a void. That's interesting. I haven't thought that this through. Well, then where do you think – where do you think you would be without – Buddhism and meditation, which I usually ask people, where would you be without your faith? Okay. Regardless of what your faith is in, you practice Buddhism and meditation. Where do you think you'd be without it? I think I'd be – I think that some of the improvements in my life have come from marrying well and uh, maturing. So I think I would not be as crazy as I was before, but I think I'd be way crazier than I am now. Still kind of yanked around by my ambition – by my um, uh, more sort of venal emotions, mm-hmm. by my temper. So I, I I think that I would probably just kind of be close to as obnoxious as I was as a young reporter or even when you first met me where uh, I just I, – and, and, and I obviously we talked about my 360. I retain the capacity to be a schmuck in lots of ways mm-hmm. and um, – my journey to 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 invoke the name of this show is just Thank to you. work on this stuff, mm-hmm. to work on this stuff. Yeah. And I believe as 10, the 10% guy that we can make marginal improvements over time and that these, these inner states, which of course um, have external consequences in our behavior, are, are skills that can be trained. That's mm-hmm. really important. That's really empowering. If I'm an evangelist, that's my good news. Well, you are an evangelist yes. in yeah, many respects. That's what you're – that is your gospel. That's what you're preaching out there. If and you had told me when I was like in my early 30s meeting these – you know what we would traditionally call evangelists uh-huh. and pastors and stuff like that, I was going to be a, a version of that. I mean uh-huh. I would have coughed my beer up through my nose. This was not I, – I had no – I had none of that fire. But it was so obvious to me when I started to look at the science around meditation that, oh, yeah – there's this concept of neuroplasticity. We mm-hmm. can change our brains and by extension our minds and by extension our behavior. That is such an enormously powerful thing. And so for me, the arguments that or the debates we're having over metaphysical claims are actually kind of uh, side concerns. For me, it's really about, okay, I, I'm, I'm interested. Those are interesting things to discuss. Those yep. are great mysteries. To me, it's like the, the only thing that – the, the thing that's much more immediate is your concrete lived experience. And that's where we can do a ton of work. You have an amazing platform right now. You probably you know, never saw this for yourself. No. Ever. No. Ever. Never. Which is fascinating in and of itself. Yeah. Have you we, ever? We, we're, sorry to interrupt. You, no, go ahead. I, I, was, I was at a Christmas party with my wife for the 10% Happier team. So we have a, um, an app. Uh, company and so there are 20 25 people who work full-time for this company now make sure you download the app by the way uh, or not whatever um that the point of bringing this up was not to talk about the app was just to talk about the fact that she, she and she and i occasionally just have these moments where we're like wow this was just a dumb book i was working on for a long time i used to joke with her in the five years during which i was writing the book it took you happier. five years to took write the five book. years to write the book oh, i used wow. to joke with her that Oh, I'm going – excuse me. I'm going to go in the next room and work on the worst book ever written. And so it was this weird side concern. By the way, meditation was kind of an embarrassing thing to be talking about back then. Yep. And, and it, was, it, was, it was a really dicey move. And especially since I was going to admit all of this stuff about the cocaine, et cetera, et cetera, it was really risky. And now there's this like 
company with all these subscribers and and all these people who work for it, and there's signs on the door, and I'm I've got a water jug I'm drinking out of right now with our little logo on Why it. Why don't I have a water jug? We only with had your this logo is a limited on. edition, of okay. and actually we just changed the logo, so it's like really out of date. Uh, it's just so surprising that this thing has taken happened. Off. And it's awesome. What was it inside of you that decided? Was it your ego? That, <laughs> Or what was it? Was it somebody encouraging you? You have to write a book on this. Uh, my meditation teacher is this really interesting guy named Joseph Goldstein, who's like not at all what you would picture a meditation teacher to look like. He's a lanky 75-year-old Jewish guy from the Catskills who went to Columbia University and happened to go into the Peace Corps after uh-huh. graduating. But he, And they placed him in Thailand. And he was a philosophy major, and he got really interested in Buddhism and meditation, and he's dedicated. He would have been a lawyer or an architect, but instead he's dedicated 55 years of his life to this thing. And he's so he's really smart and really interesting and really sort of light in his presence, not no robes. He wears khakis and button downs. And so I love this guy. And he has says many interesting things, but one of the interesting things that he talks about that's been on my mind recently is that motivation is a spectrum. If you look honestly at what's your motivation for doing something – it's going to run from kind of crass to more big and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to Joseph before 10% Happier came out, and I said, you know, I feel a little guilty because part of me is writing this book because I want it to have an effect on my career. I want I want it to be a really popular book, and I want it to differentiate me in a, in a crowded marketplace of on-air people, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, that's fine. That's going to be there. But do you have other motivations? And I said, yeah, my other motivation is I believe this practice is incredibly powerful, and I really think I can help people by talking about it. He's like, all right, so which one do you want to feed? You know, which one do you want to um, generate and work on and uh, and focus on? Obviously, the latter. But is the former still there? Sure. Well, that's absolutely. the selflessness. Yes. Like every yes. behind every selfless act is your own ego and, and selfish well, motive. And well, that's respects. an interesting we, I can get technical with you on that, but if you do, want, let's uh, get nuanced. I I don't know that. I think there can be a wise selfishness that's present in a quote unquote selfless act, in that you do it because you know you will feel good, that mm-hmm. it's invigorating, that we were wired for cooperation and kindness. But I don't know that. Um, I don't know that it's ego based. It may feel good in your bones, in your. Uh, you may have a, a feeling of um, invigoration, compassion, for example, which is not only feeling other people's pain, empathy, right. but com- it's empathy plus action. You know, the desire to help. That's traditionally how compassion is defined. That's an ennobling, empowering state. You may have a, some wise selfishness of knowing that it feels good, but if there's ego and you're doing it because you think it's going to make you look good, that I don't think is part of selflessness. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be there for sure, and I think I think it's okay. To, uh, but I, I think there are selfless acts where it's really not there. Mm-hmm. But in terms of why I do what I do and why I wrote that book when uh, no publisher wanted to put it out. and You had one I had one offer. offer. I one shopped offer, it all right? over town and nobody – I couldn't – I only got one meeting. You got one meeting? One meeting. And then the book is a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. And it's written in how many languages now? 18, 20, something like it. A, it has sold a lot of copies so to my vast surprise. Clearly you resonate. What, in some respects, I would say saved you has really resonated. Yeah, but n- nobody would have predicted this. No. I wouldn't have predicted no. it. Even like, even if I was, if you had put a gun to my head on September, on March 10th, 2014, the day before the book came out, uh-huh. and asked me for my wildest expectations, it I wouldn't have guessed this. I just I wouldn't have guessed it. Do you think that's because as your meditation teacher, as he asked you, okay, why do you want to do this? You really rooted in the fact that I want to help people. It wasn't so much. I wish I could say that. But you did. You said it was the latter. You said. No, I said I said it's both, and that meditate that it's okay for our motivation to run along a spectrum. Mm-hmm. But we one of the benefits of meditation is you're waking up to the your inner reality. And you're more self-aware about like aware. what is motivating you. And then you have a choice. Like what are you going to try to focus on more? But I don't think in my case, I've not had any experience of running the egoic part down to zero. Mm-hmm. I was That's only, impossible though, well, isn't it? I, I think Even there if are, you're an aesthetic. I think there are moments in my life where it has run down to zero in specific cases. 
And that's why I was getting a little technical with you about selflessness. Mm -hmm. Like my wife got sick. She had breast cancer a couple of years ago. There were moments when I was truly operating out of a desire to reduce pain for her Mm -hmm. because I wanted her to feel better. And yeah, that I, I could, I could sense through my meditation practice that it felt good to run around and, and make sure that everything was okay for her. But I, there was no ego. I wasn't doing it because I thought it was going to look as her. She was being, she was anesthetized anyway. So there's nothing, nobody was going to think I was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's a, like a, an acute situation, a true, uh, a t- that's why I was getting a little technical with you. No, you very, it. It's a very nuanced look at it. But a broader look at my overall motivations about 10% happier from back in the day until now is that all of, the whole gamut is there. I am still selfish and I'm still self-promotional and I'm still, um, yeah, all of those things. But I also really try to connect to the fact that uh, it's helping people. And Joseph has been really useful in that. We've had conversations where he'll say to me, so he's a very prominent teacher on our app. And he'll talk to me about how people come up to him and talk to him where he goes to the dentist now. And he's like, I'm a little celebrity at the dentist because they all use the <laughs> app. And and, uh, and he said, you know, he, he really tunes into the fact that people get a lot out of it. We're changing people's minds. And and sometimes I'll say to back to him, you know, I have a hard time taking that in because I'm thinking a lot about how are we doing vis-a-vis our competitors? Uh, what's our cash flow picture right now, et cetera, et cetera. And he is like, actually, I think it's very important that you stop and take that in mm-hmm. because – Again, going back to that spectrum of motivation, we do have some agency when it comes to what part of it we want to feed. And while it's always, while the selfish stuff is always going to be there, you can do a better job of trying to goose the the more positive end. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy for all of your success. I really am. Thank you. There's a Buddhist word for that, you know. What? You know, in, in German, they, uh, which I love, they have a word for pleasure in other people's Suffering called Schadenfreude. Yes, uh, the Buddhists have a word for word for pleasure in other people's success. It's called mudita. Mudita. Mudita, and oh. uh, it's a really hard thing to do, especially in our business. Right. And you are really good at it, and well, thank you. I think that is uh, it says a lot about you. But we live in a business where I'm actually I seen a T-shirt uh, said every time a friend every time a friend of mine succeeds, a little part of me dies. Um, and I think there's, a, there's there's some of that in our business. Where, there's a lot of that yes, in our business yes. so, where we compete even with our dear friends. Yes. And so mudita is a really important skill to generate. And there are all these meditation practices that you can do to, to work on it. I just want to ask you to kind of get back on the faith rail a little bit because um, you're very um, open that I don't know. And that's part of your own journey. Have you ever thought – and I think this all the time – um, this is not me projecting in any capacity, but have you ever thought, what if I'm wrong about all of this? Or are you so confident in what you believe? No, I, mean, I think hopefully what I'm trying to project is that I'm not that confident at all. Um, what I would imagine, I guess I haven't really thought much about this, but let me just give you an answer that I'm kind of pulling out of nowhere. You're good is, at that. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is one of Dan's specialties, by the way. <laughs> exactly. I, I reserve the right to, to later disavow everything I'm about to say, which is that if God is the way I would suspect God to be, um, I don't know that m- my lack of um, faith will be so much of an issue. I would hope that I would be evaluated based on my behavior. Mm-hmm. And I do spend a lot of time trying to improve my behavior and to be a source of, uh, you know, positivity in the world. Yep. And I would I would hope that if there's a judgment day, that that would be a pretty major factor. Does an agnostic ever, ever say, okay, God, if you're out there, give me a sign? Have you ever done that? Have you ever, like, actually tried to talk to God? No. None of that? No. Never? No. Never wanted to? It's never really crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. No. Uh um, but, you know, they say there's no atheists in foxholes. Um, uh, in other words, if you're in the trenches and during a war, uh, nobody can be an atheist. You have to be, uh, you have to be a believer in, in, in really tough circumstances. Say my kid got sick or uh, if I found myself back in a war zone. Well, that's when the rubber meets the road. That's right. when you really – when my dad passed away, that really – sitting by a parent's deathbed. Uh, I mean more – I've lost – friends and aunts and uncles and grandparents, but seeing your parent when you're 
losing a parent is it's as if your tectonic plate shift, but everything seems inconsequential. But you really, for me, it was like uh, putting on glasses for the first time, um, sitting next to my father, you know, watching him pass away. But the gift of perspective um, and what life's all about, like I, I just can't imagine not having – I can't imagine my dad saying to me, I don't know where we're going at the end of this. Like for me, I it's like, what, what are we here for? I want to be, I know I'm going to live. And that's what I told my dad. You know, the last thing I said, I know we'll be together forever. And I can't, like, I, I can't imagine not having that, you know, but that's, that's just me. Um, I tell that to my kids too. We talk about death all the time and, you know, you don't have to fear it because we're going to be together forever. And I just, it's the thing that I cling to the most. And um, like I, I, in my own mind, I just can't imagine not having, I can't imagine not having that. And even more so after watching my dad pass, you know? So um, I don't know if that's so much a question as just, I just wanted to share that with you. And the thing I love about you is that we can have these conversations and we get emotional about them. And, and um, I'm not trying to change your mind and you're not trying to change mine clearly. Um, and I love you for that. I really do like as a friend and a colleague. And, um, I just wish we could have, people could have more conversations like this. I think it's beautiful what you, and, and really, I could imagine it to be a great source of comfort. Uh, what you just described about having this confidence that you will be with your father forever. You will be with your children forever. I, you know, I, I don't have that, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in some ways, I envy it. Um, and yet, I do think that, you know, a lot of what you described of the shifting of the tectonic plates was a beautiful f- turn of phrase um, where, you know, you really are, you are putting on these gla- these reality glasses of, wow, okay, this is, we're, we're in an impermanent universe and this is going to happen to me too. This is going to mm-hmm. happen to everyone. And um, at, at the very least, we can agree on the fact that that's a moment of waking Completely. up and of, of uh, of a, I think a very healthy shifting of the tectonic plates. I think where we have, I don't even know if disagreement's the right word. I mean, I just don't share yep. that faith. But I, uh, again, and I res- and I respect you all the more for that. And I, like, you can listen to me express that to you, and you don't feel as if I'm passing any sort of judgment on you. It's just no. where I'm coming from, right. and I can listen to you. I'm not passing any sort of any sort of judgment upon you, and. I can love and respect and embrace where you're coming from as well, wholeheartedly. So anyway. Amen. Hey, preach, brother. Thank you for having me on. No, anytime. You want to come back? Um, we'll talk about that later. Maybe when you're 10% more amenable. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe after my next book. How about that? Yeah, we come on and hawk it, which is number three. When's it coming out? Your third book? That's a source of debate right now. Okay, to be determined. Okay. All right. Love you. That's the end of this episode of Journeys of Faith. Thank you so much for listening. Appreciate all of you out there who've subscribed and have given us a rating. If you haven't done either of those things, we would really, really appreciate it if you do. A big thanks to the team at ABC Radio. They know who they are, but I want you to know as well. Susie Liu, Louis Millman, Mike Dubusky, Brittany Martinez, Brianna Montalvo, Josh Cohan, and Andrew Kaub. I'm Paula Ferris, and I'll talk to you next week on Journeys of Faith.